Every day, a small group of people are making quantum leaps forward, building wealth faster than most dream possible, almost like they have the Midas touch. On Breakaway Wealth, we'll unlock the secrets to breaking out of the herd, thinking big, and building wealth on our own terms. And now let's join our host, the founder of Create Tailwind and your abundance advocate, Jim Oliver. Welcome back, everybody. This is Jim Oliver, your host of Breakaway Wealth. And with me today, I'm uh, really excited to have Paul Moore. And uh, welcome, Paul. Hey, glad to be here, Jim. And uh, uh, Paul, you, you, uh, you have a great name for your podcast. And uh, tell everybody what it is. We have a wealth building podcast, Jim. It's called How to Lose Money. I love that. I love that. Because uh, uh, so t why, why how to lose money? Tell, tell the audience. You know, I spent years going to seminars and, and, and these, these uh, you know, especially this father-daughter retreat I'd go to with my daughter. I went seven years in a row, Jim. Yeah. And all the people on the stage would just trumpet all their successes. And all the fathers and daughters around the table, there was this kind of like silence after the messages. And they were like, yeah, I'll never, I'll never get there. I'm, I feel like a failure after coming to these. And then, so I started asking questions, you know, like, hey, where have you failed? Where do you struggle as a dad? And they, they never answered. Right. They, they would give me this deer in the headlights look, or they wouldn't answer at all. And finally, one time, I won't even get into it. Somebody, a guy that I knew, and I knew his family fairly well, he answered, well, I struggled to pass on my vision to the next generation. Seriously? And so that's your struggle. So anyway, I said, you know, I'm going to, if I ever get in a position to, I'm going to talk about failure and struggle and pain because it's a lot easier to avoid pain and failure and learn from others' mistakes than it is to replicate their success. You know, I don't, I couldn't, you know, I can't go replicate Jeff Bezos, you know, start selling books out of a garage. Okay, what's next? Yeah. But I can learn from some things he did wrong and apply those lessons to my business. And that's why we've interviewed almost 150 people now talking about their failures on the road to success. Wow. You know, that's, uh, that's great. You know, that quote, uh, I'm either winning or I'm learning. Well, uh, I think that was, uh, uh, who was that? Wasn't Nelson I Mandela? I haven't heard that. You never heard that? Yeah, no, it's uh, I'm to add that to my list. Yeah, it's a great quote. I'm either I'm either winning or I'm learning and and I've had a lot of learning in 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 my life too. Um so Paul, tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started and interested in in helping people learn about money and growing wealth and and uh and and learning from their mistakes. All right. So I grew up with a family that did not manage our money well. You know, we went out to eat a lot. And um, though my dad made a fair amount of money for, you know, somebody, I guess, upper middle class, um, we always seemed to spend it all and never managed it, never watched out for it, always seemed to do whatever we wanted to do. And we didn't have money left over to do a, a lot of fun things. Uh, some of my friends seemed like they lived a lot more frugally, but then they would take a, a vacation to Europe or something, you know, and I was like, wow. How'd they do that? We bought new cars and, and things like that, which I think honestly is not the best use of your money. I think that's pretty well documented. Yep. And um, anyway, so I grew up and I, when I became an entrepreneur, I just started drawing money out as I needed it. You know, I didn't love off a budget. This was in the early nineties. Uh, I had left Ford Motor Company to start my own company with a partner. 
And um, I just started drawing money out. And when I got down to zero or more likely bounced a check uh, at the time, you know, I was in my late 20s, right? Um, I would just take more money out of the business. And I kept doing that. And and then, you know, I I just, I, I thought, well, I'll get ahead of the game by making more money. I won't manage what I have because that takes too much effort. And I honestly, I, I saw a friend who is now 58 or 59 years old and he has dementia. He's got a lot of money saved up because he had a middle-class job and he, they were so frugal. All four of their kids grew up like with, you know, and they didn't flush the toilet. Right. It's kind of gross, right? But they were trying to save that water, you know, and they didn't go on vacation and their cars were a mess. That's the other extreme, you know? I mean, they didn't even enjoy what they had. And so I didn't want to be like that. And so I think I, I, I wish, Jim, that I would have learned a balance, you know, make more money at the same time manage what I had more. And, and so that's what I've learned to do in these last, in this last decade or so. Uh, but it was a hard road to get there. I did not learn to manage money well. And it amazes me to think of all the classes people take in junior high, high school, college, grad school, but why don't we learn to manage our money? You know? Yeah. I think there's a, there's a reason that they don't want us to do that. You know, um, Frederick Bastiat, he said that there's, there's in economics, there's the seen and the unseen. Well, the banks, the government and Wall Street, they want us to focus on the scene. But the unseen, they want that to be held back for them, for their benefit. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't want to teach us that. It's like Robert Kiyosaki always talks about is financial education, that we don't get financial education, which is what you're, what you're saying, um, Paul. You know, I find it amazing that a doctor can go to school for 17 years and you know how many economics classes they take? Zero. Zero. I mean, and they're going to be running these multi-million dollar businesses. But, you know, for most people, again, the name of this podcast is Breakaway, and it's kind of breakaway from the pack or the herd. And But most people are taught we want to accumulate a bunch of money till we get to the point where we've got a lot of money sitting in it, some kind of an account. And then we're going to live off of for the rest of our lives. And then we're going to hope that we don't run out of money. Right. That sounds stressful, right? Yeah, it is. And so when you're talking to somebody about real estate, because you're a real estate investor, right? Mm -hmm. And is to me, instead of climbing that mountain and then heading down, why don't we just keep going up? So how, how, how can people, you know, use real estate or um, use some of the lessons that you've learned and some of the advice that you give your clients? How can they use that to just keep ascending instead of uh, ascending and then descending? You know, it's amazing. Uh, commercial real estate, you know, almost all of the Forbes 400 is invested. A lot of them made it in commercial real estate, but almost everyone is invested in commercial real estate because. Uh, second only to the very much riskier oil and gas business, uh, the tax advantages are stunning. A friend of mine in California came to me once and said, you know, I could show you how to take $20 million and if you invested it with me, didn't touch it for 10 years, I could multiply that 20 million internally by uh, cascading up, which I'll talk about in a minute, Jim. And then over the next 10 years, over 20 years total, 
I could throw off 131 million in income and build the remaining portfolio from 20 million to $210 million. And during the course of that, he said, I could show you how you could theoretically pay zero in income and capital gains tax. He said, if the American people knew how much money real, commercial real estate investors make and how little taxes they could pay if structured right, there, there'd be another tax revolution on our hands. And so I thought that was crazy. So I looked into it and it was true. And it's actually even better than when he said it because he said it in 2016, before the tax law changes of December 2017, from our president, who's a commercial real estate guy. And now it's even better than it was before. So now cascading up, what I'm talking about there is taking one single singular investment and effect, effectively splitting that into multiple investments over time. And the way to do that, just as an example, if somebody invested $100,000 passively, in theory, if invested correctly, and it's not hard to see how this could be done. I've got a syndicator we invest with, uh, an operator in self-storage, who has done this 19 times over the last several years. You invest, they have a formula for growing that money quickly and then either refinancing or exiting in three to five years. And he's done it, actually the average for him, average has been 2.7 years, but we say three to five. And then that money is either returned through an exit or through a refinance, and then that money can be reinvested. So the 100,000 in his model becomes 200,000 in about three to four years, and that becomes 400,000 in three to four more years, becomes 800,000. And you know what? Somebody asked me last, I think it was about a year ago, they said, well, how much would that become in say 20 or 30 years? I said, I don't know, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, he said, well, how much? I said, well, okay. So I put together an Excel spreadsheet and I thought I had to be wrong. I couldn't believe it. But Jim, I mean, it, it, using the standard re, the returns that this company has gotten historically, cutting them in half, I was able to show how an investor can take 100000 and turn it into 3 to $5 million in 20 to 25 years. Wow. And, you go another 10 years and it's the number seems ridiculous even. So talk about cascading up, talking about growing it out through retirement. That's a way, there's other ways, but that is a very predictable way to do it. You know, what I like about that, Paul, is there's not very many things in life that get better as we get older. And it's one of the reasons that when we use infinite banking, but what you're talking about is you're really talking about in economics, what we call creating velocity with your money, mm -hmm. right? Is because if a bank takes, uh, if a bank puts together a mortgage and lends you money for, let's say a $300,000 mortgage at 5% and your payment's about 1600 bucks a month, well, what do they do when you pay that payment in? They, they take it and they put it with mine and a bunch of other people's and they loan it out to somebody else for another mortgage and then another mortgage and they're making interest on the first loan, the second loan, the, and it's this, this velocity effect. Right. And then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's one of the reasons that in infinite banking, we always use a whole, a, a very specific type of whole life policy because it gains momentum and cascading cash values going forward. It's not like indexed or variable or something else to where if the market has a correction, 
then you might not gain or you might not keep that momentum. Um, I love uh, 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 Darren Hardy's book, The Compound Effect. And he gives an example in this book of a penny doubling every day for 31 days. Mm -hmm. And if you don't interrupt the compounding, you have $10,737,000. But let's say that on day 22, when you got about 21 grand, you got to go buy a new car and you take the money out of there. Well, you just interrupted your compounding, right? And, and he shows the effect of that. You end up with $2.56. Oh, my Obviously, goodness. You wouldn't do that wow. in that account, right? Yeah. But well, people do that. People do it all the time. They do it all the time. And it I doesn't do, matter. I've done it. Yeah. So I love this concept because I think this, that what you're talking about um, for, for our clients and our listeners that are doing infinite banking, this is a perfect marriage. And you're familiar with infinite banking. Do you, do you implement in, uh, infinite banking in, in, in your strategy or do you have people that do that? Oh, yeah, we have. You know, I didn't really know much about it. I'm going to write that book down. It's The Compound Effect. Yep. Darren Hardy. You know, I listen to Darren Daly. I, I get Darren Daly on my text stream every morning. And I, one of my goals this year is to try to listen to everyone. And I'm, I'm not there yet, but I, I, I really love his stuff. And so, but I, I'm not familiar with the book. So that's great to know. Um, we have had, you know, I don't think it's the reticular activator thing or however you say it, you know, when you're looking for a Volvo, all of a sudden you see Volvos everywhere or you just bought one. But I have had so many people talk to me about infinite banking uh, in the last year or bank on yourself. Yeah. And I have been surprised. I've been on four podcasts at least uh, talking about this and I've had four or five guests. It seems to be an amazing thing. And, 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 and I, you know, Jim, I've, I've had a hard time honestly getting my arms around it because I, I feel like I don't know what I don't know. But a guy named David Shirky, I don't know if you know David by any I chance, don't. but he's a real successful business owner and investor out of Michigan. And he contacted me recently. He said he spent months analyzing infinite banking. You know, I guess he was trying to poke a hole in it. And he ended up going back and interviewing quite a few different infinite banking um, uh, I don't know how you say it, but people who set up the infinite sure. bank concept. And he, uh, he said, look, I'm going to do, you know, like a, a $20,000 policy or something. I don't know what it was. Yeah. And he ended up um, uh, getting a bunch of his family involved. And they, they did, I, you know, I'm guessing, I'll, I don't want to say the amount on here, but a whole, yeah. whole lot of policies and a whole lot of money. And he's a year or two into it now. And he loves it. And he's done all this research and, you know, he's, he's had tremendous success with my son was so impressed by this and he's a real estate investor. He set up his own uh, account last year as well. So I'm really excited to see how this marriage is going to work with commercial real estate in the future. You know, um, yeah, I, I, I'm excited about it because, you know, just kind of getting to know you a little bit, Paul, um, is I'm, I'm excited to take what I know with infinite banking and what you know, and I can see in a very short period of time, the expertise that you have in this commercial real estate space. And, um, you know, you said something to me earlier about a friend on, on self-storage and, you know, being that I spend uh, part of my time in Southwest Florida, climate-controlled self-storage, 
every time I drive by there, I think, Jim, you got to find out about this. You got to buy into that. You, you, you have to. It, the yeah. economics I know are crazy. It, it is crazy. So a friend of mine uh, found a location in Naples, Florida, uh, had no other self-storage in a five-mile radius. Now, it's really hard to find a location like that these days, but yeah. he, he did. He got it all permitted. His plan was to build it, fill it up, operate it, and then perhaps sell it to a REIT. Well, what actually happened is he got it permitted. He built it. Before he rented the first unit, a REIT came in and bought it. He had 9 or $10 million total, total in it. They bought it for $20 million. Now, that sounds like a pretty good deal, doubling your money. No, not so at all. He had a, about $8 million in debt. Okay? So right. he had $2 million in cash in it. And, and by the way, that's an approximate number. It may have been $3 million, But 2 or $3 million in cash in it. Getting a $20 million offer, think about the leverage there. He actually, what would that be? He probably four, I think he actually made 400% profit. That's right. So yeah. his equity investors in about 1.9 years total, total, made about a 400% profit. So 200% a year, not bad. And that is not always doable, but that I, I know an ex another example of someone else who did like triple that in about wow. two years. And so it is possible, but the question is, is it possible for you, Jim? And is it possible for me, Paul? And the answer is probably not because these guys have decades of experience doing that. So the question I had to ask myself is, do I, why, why should I work harder than I need to to make less than I could when I can rather find a great operator like that and invest with them and sit on the beach in Naples while it's being built in town. That's the path I've chosen. And a lot of my investors are coming with me. Well, you're um, now, now I'm glad my wife isn't, uh, I'm sure she will listen to this and she's going to say, Hey Jim, we need to do what Paul just said because my wife is one of those people that she could, sit on the beach every single day, reading the book, watch the sunset every single day. And, you know, what you just said is most people don't want to, they either don't have the time or don't want to put in the time for whatever reason, or don't feel like that they can take control of that. But you have a, you have a solution for that. You, you, can, you can reap the reward without putting in all of the work to learn, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. We, we've set up two funds. One is the Wellings Income Fund, number one, and the other is Wellings Growth Fund, number one. My company's Wellings Capital, by the way. Awesome. And um, so we uh, have tapped, we are spending an enormous amount of time vetting these operators. And even if they have a great location or the great financials or everything looks good on paper, if they haven't had years of track record, as a cohesive team, they haven't survived or, or hopefully even thrived through the last recession, we won't work with them. We, we're trying to spend time vetting these operators, vetting the locations, vetting the projects, so that when we put them into our fund, our investors can know that we've already went through a significant process before we put them in there. And we're hopefully, you know, the growth fund, we're investing in deals like the one I just mentioned in Naples. The income fund, we're investing in much lower risk, already performing deals. 
uh, for people who need ongoing income. So what would somebody, how would somebody get started or learn more about it to where they could make a decision if that was right for them? Would they go to your website or? Oh yeah, they could just come to our website, wellingscapital.com or they could, you know, they could uh, schedule a time to chat with me. And if they wanted to check out or listen kind of passively, they could go uh, listen to your podcast and, um, or past episodes and get some great ideas too. Actually, you know, I've on my website, there's about 60, uh, 60 or so uh, recordings of guest spots where I've been on other people's podcasts. My podcast, How to Lose Money, I'm really focused on my guests and their story. So probably not the best place to hear about these funds. Okay, awesome. And is there, um, you know, I think that's really, because one of the things that I deal with people about building their wealth every day, and, um, and I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about helping someone learn how to do this. And when I talk about, yeah, I bought this business or I did this real estate or, you know, people sometimes say, well, how do I start? I don't know where to start. I don't, you know, do I start reading every Robert Kiyosaki book that I can get my hands on? And then do I go, you know, do I, uh, you know, read other books? You know, what, what do I do? And, 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 and this is really cool because this is a, this is a, an opportunity for somebody to be able to start now. Right. Yeah, you know, it's and, true. Yeah. It's so one of the things that you talked about, like, um, you know, when we think of combining infinite banking and in the real estate project is you talked about, he didn't put 10, $10 million or, or whatever it was into the project because he only had to do 20% down 80% loan to value to, to get the project going. So he, you know, the, the project doubled, but he didn't have that money in it. So with infinite banking for people that don't understand is you would use your cash value as collateral. So let's say for instance, this gentleman had $2 million of cash value. Mm -hmm. He would use that as collateral, borrow the insurance company's money interest only. He would have only paid interest for 1.9 years mm -hmm. at say four or 5%. Right. So he would have, very little in this project and his multiple wouldn't be 400%. It'd probably be, you know, over a thousand percent. Yeah, I can imagine that. Well, now what would be the tax effect of that? I'm curious, Jim. Well, the money that you borrow from the insurance company, if it's for a tax deductible uh, um, uh, use, you know, like if you went to the bank and you could deduct the money, borrowing the money from the insurance company, you can still deduct the money. They're a financial institution just like the bank, as long as you have the, the proper documentation, promissory notes, everything else, you can deduct that interest. So that 4% or 5% that you'd be paying in interest is deductible. Wow. But, but your money stayed in a tax shelter. So if you think right. of it this way, Paul, your money grew tax-free while you used the insurance company's money and got to deduct the interest that you paid the insurance company. Are you so, saying that my money would grow while I was using it? I mean, absolutely. it would grow internally? Wow, that's Yeah, because awesome. what most, even insurance agents, I used to teach um, life insurance at the College for Financial Planning in Denver to get your CFP designation through the American College. And um, they, they don't teach insurance agents about loans. But when you take a loan against the whole life policy, your money doesn't go anywhere. So it stays in this tax shelter, growing tax-free, right? And you get to use the insurance company's money, tax wow. deductible. So the money you're making, you don't pay tax on. The money you're spending, you get to deduct. 
Mm. Now wow. you combine that with commercial real estate and it's a beautiful thing. Let's get started. <laughs> I know I'm excited. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go to your website and I'm going to, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready All to right. start. Cause, yeah. cause you know, um, I, I've done a lot with, you know, I've bought some tech businesses and some uh, reverse logistic businesses. And, you know, there's a lot of work that goes along with those things and, and they're rewarding and the returns can be astronomical, but you know, and I've bought uh, uh, real estate in Southwest Florida um, and I just wait for the market to go down. I buy, uh, then the, the, the rents are still high. Um, it's a, you know, I, I have a lot of properties I've never even seen. I have property managers I've never even met, but I just get checks. But nice. this is taking it to another level um, to the commercial side, which seems like a very complex thing that obviously you're simplifying for people. Right. You know, the, one of the beauties of commercial real estate, Jim, is that the formula, the value is not based on comps. So no matter how nicely, and I, I flipped about 60 homes over the years, and one of them in particular, no matter how nice I had it on the inside and the outside, it was still limited by the highest price homes on that street. And I think most everybody knows that. But in commercial real estate, it's not that way. It's based on a formula and the value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. And the right. cap rate is the capitalization rate, the, the normal expected rate of return on a project like that in that location. And that's the denominator. The numerator, of course, is the net operating income before debt service. And so if you can move the numerator up and the denominator down, which most people don't think you can do, but you can uh, for the right project, you can dramatically increase the value of the property. And when you add leverage to it, it increases it all the more. A quick example. So the operators we invest with, let's say they add U-Haul. So they might buy a mom and pop property. Let's say an existing property. We just invested in one in uh, South Carolina near between Myrtle Beach and Charleston area. And we invested in this property that was owned by a mom and pop operator the new buyer, the new owner that we invested with is adding U-Haul. So that's going to add about, let's say, $2,000 a month to the bottom line for this property. Okay, so $2,000 a month, that's $24,000 a year. But when you divide by the cap rate of, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, let's just use 5%. Now, they were, let's say it was 7% cap rate when they bought it. But they, if they're selling to a REIT, it would be in the fives somewhere. I'm using that for easy math as well. So you multiply that 24,000 by 20, and that value of that property just went up $480,000. That's great on a, you know, say a $6 million project to go up by half a million. That's a great increase. But when you take it by the fact that when you consider the fact there was a 60% loan to value loan on it, Yep. Now you only have 40% equity in it. That 480,000 effectively increased the equity by uh, uh, two and a half times as much as that. So it increased the equity effectively by 2.5x because there's 60% loan. Now, if your loan is also from a, an infinite banking source, not just from a bank, guess who's going to make even more money? 
I'm right. thinking the investor is. So you take the U-Haul example and you come up with a dozen others like selling locks, boxes, tape, scissors, raising the rents on some of your long-term tenants, building an additional climate control building, uh, adding signage, adding a beautiful showroom with other items for sale. There's all kinds of things you can do to leverage and take a mom and pop and make it an institutional quality asset that in in my case, in our case, 2.7 years in the past, uh, we are able to be sold to a REIT and taking the cap rate from a seven to say 5.6, which is kind of an average lately in selling to REITs, you're dramatically, do you know if you take, you're dramatically increasing the equity. If you take a seven cap property and sell it to a REIT for 5.7, I believe, that's about a 28% increase in asset value, but that's about a 60% increase in value to the equity just by buying here and selling to a REIT at the lower cap rate. That alone, think about it, 60% appreciation just from finding the right seller and the right buyer. Then you take the income increase, it's incredible. And that's the beauty of commercial real estate, Jim. That's, you know, that's amazing. You know, one of the things that I like to um, point out, Paul, to people that are interested in real estate, if you buy a um, personal residence or even a, um, um, a uh, if, if you're going to flip a house like you, you talked about, um, or you're going to rent it out, it's worth whatever the, the seller is willing to, uh, you know, or the buyer's willing to buy it for and the seller's willing to sell it for, but the seller sets the price, Right. And you decide if you want to pay that price or not. And it's negotiable. But right. in commercial real estate, that's not the case. It's the books. It's the profit. You know, it's, it's, it's like when you go buy a business. It, you know, if, if somebody says, hey, my business is worth $100 million. Well, if the books don't say it is, then it's not, right? And, right. and so it kind of takes that subjectivity out of the, the process. Right. It, I like things that are you know, there's a formula for things. Right. Very predictable. And so. then you have to know the formula, which you obviously do. Right. Yeah. So, it's, it, it, it is powerful. So, you know, I know, let's go back to maybe the beginning because one of the things I'm sitting here thinking about, which is a question I like to ask people is what made you or motivated you to break away? You said you were with Ford uh, Motor Company, um, like how does a guy go from Ford Motor Company and that's where you got a, you know, you got a great paycheck, you got a great pension, great benefits, and you just blew that up and said, I'm breaking away and going this direction. Yeah, my wife was about seven months pregnant with our first child at the time as well. So not the smartest time to uh, leave on paper. But I tell you, you know, I love Ford Motor Company. I was in Dearborn in their headquarters and I had a great, apparently a great path ahead of me. But, you know, I found myself a month or two in, Jim, being bored. And I love Ford. I still drive a Ford. But I found myself being bored at Ford. I just thought of that. And um, anyway, I, I, I was spending evenings and weekends looking for entrepreneurial ideas, you know, uh, trying to set up businesses on the side. I tried to start an oil chain shop in Farmington, Michigan. And I tried to, that was back in the day in the 80s, you know, and uh, tried to start a property tax consulting business, which we actually did. And I just found myself wanting to do something entrepreneurial. So that's what made me originally break away from the corporate life. And I've 
rarely, if ever, regretted it. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's cool. What, uh, what would you say, was there any advice that you've gotten over your life, Paul, that you think that's the best advice anybody's ever given me? Oh, I've had so much like that. I, I don't know which one to, to harp on. Now let's, uh, let's hit this one. Um, I, you know, when I sold my company, I was a finalist for Entrepreneur of the Year in Michigan two years in a row in 96 and 97. Got the attention of a publicly traded firm who bought our company in late 97. And, you know, I, at that time, I thought, oh, I, I'm going to go into semi-retirement at age 34 or 35. And it sounded like a great idea. Jim, I was bored to death. I was a fast-paced, type A, highly energized entrepreneur. And to sit at home and to think that I would be the best version of myself uh, as a father and a husband, I became the worst version of myself, actually. And so I had a couple million dollars in the bank. And um, I became just kind of miserable. And so wasn't a great father, wasn't a great husband. And uh, I considered myself an investor, but I wasn't. I was actually a speculator because I didn't know the difference. You know, Jim, investing, and this is the advice, finally, uh, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got an opportunity to make a profit on it. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got an opportunity to make a profit on it. And I found myself speculating and I called myself an investor, but I was actually a speculator. And so I invested in all kinds of high-risk ventures. You know, if Bitcoin would have been around then, I would have invested in Bitcoin, I'm sure. And I'm not knocking that, but let's face it, it doesn't have a value attached to it. Buffett invests in stuff that has a quantifiable value. The self-storage we talked about earlier, mobile home parks we invest in, multifamily that I wrote about in my book, it has a quantifiable value that is going to be there in, you know, I'm not gonna say regardless of an economic downturn, but those three asset classes did very, very well in the last downturn, and we expect that they will again uh, in the right circumstances. You know, the, uh, the first, uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics from the U.S. is Paul Samuelson. And Paul said, investing, not speculating, investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So that's what I had to learn. I had to learn the difference between speculating and investing. And I wish I would have learned it in my 20s rather than much later. You know, and, and by the way, back to your, your early retirement, you know, the definition of retirement is to be taken out of service. And, <laughs> and um, yeah. I'm 53 years old. And if I was 83, then I hope that I'm still of service to somebody. Right. And, I'm, and I'm helping somebody learn um, something or I'm having fun doing something in my life. Because, yeah. um, you know, when I'm in Florida, and I've, you know, you've got the golf, and I could go fishing, I'm I'm not a great fisherman, but I'm, I'm really good when, when we're catching something. And, um, and I could sit on the beach for about an hour before I'm going crazy. And, yeah. and I could play golf a few days a week. But, but if I didn't have a project or something I'm passionate about, um, I don't care what age you are, you go crazy. But, right. you know, what you said is most people think investing is giving money to their Edward Jones or their RBC guy or somebody like that 
who's going to say, oh, I'm going to dollar cost average and I'm going to have you, you know, I'm, here's your, here's your, uh, you know, modern portfolio theory growth, uh, uh, you know, account. And this is your, your blend. Wall Street is like going to Vegas because there isn't a predictable, right. I mean, they're, they're, by the way, for people that know what they're doing, it is predictable. Right. People that know what they're doing and they know the rhythms and they know the value. But for the average person who's just going out and buying um, XYZ mutual fund and paying somebody 1% to be the middleman or 2% sometimes, that's insane to me. But to pay somebody for their expertise that says, here's what we're going to do, that's where investing makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I have people, I have friends that make money in Wall Street but it's not sitting in a mutual fund for 20 years. You know, it's, it's, it's because it, where they don't control or even know, they've never read the prospectus. They don't know what those, they have no idea what, what uh, Janus 20 back in the day, what they were investing in, right? Mm -hmm. So right. it's kind of invest in what you know. And if you don't know it, then you find somebody who does and you partner with them. Right which is what you said. Now, right. you, you, uh, you mentioned your book, and I want to get to that in just a minute. Is there another book out there that, that you read that just changed the way you thought about things or one or two books that really changed your direction or your life? Yeah, so I've really struggled with time management. I've really struggled, honestly, trying to you know, differentiate the important from the urgent. And uh, so the book that helped me the most and the book I've continued to try to implement over this last few years is called, and it's you're well known to you and your audience, I'm sure, it's called The One Thing by Gary Keller. Yep. Gary Keller, founder of Keller Williams, wrote this, and he's got a whole system now, a uh, $30 a month program you can join uh, for accountability and to um, help stay on course implementing the one thing. So that's been a great book for me. A couple other books I've read in the last month or two that I've really enjoyed. I finally read Good to Great from Jim Collins, and it yep. was wonderful, as promised. Uh, I'm going through Gino Wickman's stuff, Traction, yep. and uh, Rocket Fuel, and Get a Grip right now. We're getting Rocket ready to implement that. Yep. Yeah, we had Rocket Fuel's co-author, Renee Boer, on our uh, podcast. I actually knew Gino when I was in Michigan. He, his dad is a, a real estate legend, Floyd Wickman. And so Gino's actually, you know, followed in his footsteps and his dad works for him now. And um, another one I'm reading right now is Ray Dalio. The book is called Principles. And I think it was uh, obviously a very popular book over the last year or two and uh, really enjoying that. Yeah. Yeah. There's another book uh, out there. Have you ever read Slight Edge? No. Um, I can't, um, the author is uh, escaping me right now, but I will, uh, I okay. will get you, uh, yeah. uh, I'll get you the I'll author for that. Cause I think it's right in, in the vein of books, I read a lot and there's in the vein of books that you're, you're talking about, this is another book that fits really well into that, that theme and that, that the, the lessons in those books. Well, tell us, tell us about your book. Oh, well, I have a, a not at all arrogantly titled book <laughs> called The Perfect Investment. Um, it's about multifamily real estate. I, I wrote a book. I wrote the book. It was called, I actually, my first book was The Definitive Guide to Such and Such. And I thought I'll just call it the same thing, The Definitive Guide to Multifamily Investing. And uh, I had a, quite a few um, 
people, including the president or CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association, who was also in the White House. Uh, he was the head of HUD at one time, Dave Stevens. He wrote a nice uh, blurb for it. Quite a few other people did. But finally, someone was honest and said, Paul, that boring. That's such a boring title. And it's so limiting. Why don't you call it what it really is? And he had read the book. He said, it's really the perfect investment. Multifamily is the perfect balance of risk and return. It's got a demographics that support a beautiful future for it. And um, why don't you call it the perfect investment? So I went out on a limb and I did. And it's actually sold quite well. I've been really pleased by it. It's been around for two and a half years. The problem, Jim, is that lots and lots of people have discovered the perfect investment. And it's not perfect if you can't find any deals that make sense. So unfortunately, though I clearly love multifamily and I would bet on it for the next 100 years, right now at this point in time, at the time we're recording this, it's somewhat overheated and very hard to find a good deal. And so that's why we've expanded to not only include multifamily in our portfolio, but also self-storage and mobile home parks. That's awesome. Um, and um, I want to make an offer to anybody that every, uh, a lot of the listeners know that we try to give away something or, or um, try to help you in your path to break away um, from the herd is if you go to createtailwind.com and you sign up for our overview webinar, we're going to actually send the first 10 people that sign up, we're going to send you Paul's book, The Perfect Investment. And uh, uh, I would hope that that would go pretty quick, Paul. Um, so uh, thank you for uh, participating in that and helping us with that. And thank you, you for writing that book. You bet. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad to make it available to you. And um, I think everything I wrote in the book is still as relevant as when I wrote it. I'm just waiting for multifamily to cool down a little bit. I will say, though, if I had to pick one asset class I believed in, like I said, that I had to put money in and wouldn't touch for 100 years, it would be multifamily. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not as much of a real estate expert as you are, Paul, but I, I tend to agree with you. Um, you know, one of the things that I really like about just as we've got to know each other over this last uh, 30, 45 minutes, whatever it's been, is that what I believe you have to do is when we talk to our clients, they're the hero, we're the guide. And what I hear you saying and is you're a great guide in this space. And so I would encourage everybody to investigate Paul's um, offering on his website and his book, because this is one of the arrows that you need to build a passive income streams and, and, and getting somebody like this on your team, I think is a huge, huge win. So Paul, thank you so much for your time today. And, and I would love to have you come back and talk to in, in more depth because I know I'm gonna get some questions like, you know, to explain your formula on, um, and, uh, uh, that, you, that you went over in more detail. So maybe next time, or maybe in some of the meeting notes, if you have anything that would help somebody that or, or link to your website, um, let's put those in the meeting notes so somebody can learn on their own. Oh, that's great. Well, I'll tell you what, get my book, sign up, everybody sign up for a meeting with Jim and you'll get a free copy of my book because in chapter four and then more detail in chapter eight, I go through the value formula that drives the value of any commercial real estate investment. 
And it's, you know, like I said, it's the, the value is the income divided by the cap rate. And then there are four, three expressions of that value that I go into a lot of detail in, in chapter eight. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to read the book, Paul. And um, again, I can't thank you enough for taking time today and sharing with our audience. Uh, um, it's um, been great to get to know you. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. It's been a true honor to be on the show. Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your terms? We'd love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.